You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. You're with Victoria Brazel and Ben Simon again, talking us through the November Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I'm good. I'm on a high after how well this month has been, actually. It's been a fabulous discussion, both in terms of numbers and quality and a little bit of wit and wisdom. Uh, Tell us about the paper and how we went with it. Absolutely. So this month, uh, we were looking at another seminal paper, which was called Establishing a Safe Container for Learning and Simulation. It's by uh, Jenny Rudolph et al. and was published in 2014 in Simulation and Healthcare. And it's really a paper that's held dear to the hearts of many medical educators, be they simulationists or otherwise, actually. For many, it's their first exposure to the concept of psychological safety and simulation. It introduces the metaphor of the safe container, Uh, which is described in the article as an environment where learners face professionally meaningful challenges and are held to high standards in a way that engages them but doesn't intimidate or humiliate them. So, Rudolf, Raymer and Simon begin the article by describing a number of threats to learner engagement in simulation. In particular, they name poor buy-in, frustration with levels of fidelity, professional identity threat, and difficulties discussing suboptimal performance. But in contrast to those learning barriers, they also then highlight the importance of risk-taking in the service of learning. And they essentially explain that a willingness to go to the edge of your social and intellectual comfort zone is really beneficial to educational growth. They describe traits known as learning-oriented behaviours, such as reflectiveness, feedback-seeking, and speaking up. Um, And essentially, the rest of the article from there is really about drawing those traits out of people when we're running sims so that they can get the best out of it. But before they start running through specific specific strategies to do that, the authors actually make a really crucial point that um, I think is often overlooked. And they state, psychological safety may not completely mitigate feelings of interpersonal risk. Rather, it tends to create a setting where learners feel safe enough to embrace being uncomfortable. And in other words, the safe container is not there to stop us feeling uncomfortable. It's there to allow our learners to embrace that discomfort in the pursuit of new knowledge. And it's a pretty important point, Vic, and um, it was a little bit of the hidden curriculum in the the, um, helicopter parent case study we had this month. Um, Have you had that issue come up before as a subtlety that's really hard to teach? Uh, I think you mean teach in terms of faculty development, but also I think the broader like a lot of things we think this is about simulation whereas of course the concept of psychological safety is everywhere just as your beautiful case study illustrated Uh, people do have to be given enough rope and sometimes we hang ourselves yeah yeah it's a really difficult kind of issue to negotiate there was some fantastic discussion in terms of trying to summarize it this was our biggest month I think we've ever had. So we had 40 comments uh, and I just want to thank everybody for coming along, including uh, Jenny Rudolph and a number of people from a lot of continents. Um, And it's been really hard to do justice to everybody's thoughts on the article because there was a lot of sharing uh, their thoughts about psychological safety in particular. But I think the key three points from my perspective uh, were that one, establishing psych safety And running the simulation doesn't always have to be contemporaneous. Two, a psychologically safe simulation doesn't need to be free of stress. And then three, creating a safe container takes nuance and experience and will all sometimes fail. 
I think in the discussion, it was pretty clear that everybody agreed that pre-briefing was really important, but we also acknowledged that in in situ sims, they're often quite sudden and you can't have that nice in-depth pre-brief beforehand all the time. So it was really interesting getting some strategies that people had developed within their units for how to cope with that. So Steph Barwick and Claire Thomas, for example, had work, had made some workarounds where they did things like corporate orientation regarding SIM. They might phone around the week before a SIM is going to take place to let the participants know and just to set the ground rules. Or I think Nimad Al-Saba was also sending out emails just to let everyone know that it's happening, what to expect, and to just take that opportunity to set the tone. And it doesn't all have to be at the same time as the SIM itself, which is a good learning point for me. The second point was that a psychologically safe simulation doesn't need to be free of stress. Yeah, and what I was going to say about that is, you know, this mirrors that juxtaposition we have where people say, oh, well, you know, that consultant treated me badly, but gee, I learned a lot. He was completely uncompromising and he was horrible to me, but gee, I knew my stuff. And I think mirrors some of that same kind of conundrum because we have all had those experiences and yet at the same time we think oh but there's probably a better way and it's something about having the adequate arousal that you are in that right space to be learning uh, but without being destroyed yeah it's a real kind of tightrope to walk and i i think um i do worry that in med ed and in society in general maybe sometimes we we kind of assume that nice means good and critical means bad and it gets sort of overgeneralized. And I think it can be really hard to set that right warm tone while encouraging risk and encouraging honest critical feedback. And I think we had a number of examples that people brought up in the case, uh, sorry, in the discussion of... A lot of personal experiences were really shared where people had had those negative experiences and they talked about not just how that made them feel, but what was really interesting is they also had the capacity to reflect on whether or not it helped them with their learning. And certainly um, a number of people took the stance that the shame and the humiliation that they felt from that negative experience was really the takeaway message rather than the learning process or the the critical treatment point that was needed to be hammered home. So it's difficult to negotiate that. Um, I know that Derek Louis, for example, argued that he felt psych safety, if defined by the ability to speak and act without fear of negative consequence, self-image, status or career, is somewhat of a fiction, which I disagreed with. And, and Mary Fay probably argued the opposite, saying that simulation is just the place to allow learners to perform under duress. A safe environment is one in which the learners trust that the facilitator is not out to get them and has their best interests at heart. And in the context of this type of trusting relationship, they're willing and able to tolerate stress and discomfort in the service of learning. And then we're lucky enough to have Jenny uh, come on and she mentioned, she sort of described this sweep spot um, as being a point where learners can engage in reflective versus deflective routines and avoiding praise as a defensive mechanism and instead really getting the whole team focused on getting better and getting better. And um, she described it as quite an intimate moment. And I think that really, that certainly hit home for me. I know there's just the occasional sim where you really get that sweet spot and it just, it does feel quite intimate, but also powerful. Yeah, I liked those comments that came from the people who were doing Insight Shoe or working with their usual learner groups because I do think that if you have already got an established pattern of behaviour that has engendered that trust, 
with your learners, either through working with them or through educating with them, then the pre-brief really just becomes a summary of that. And I don't think, as a number of the respondents said, you can make up for being a not very good supervisor in the workplace by doing a brilliant pre-brief. I think this is not just about the sim. I think it really is about also what are the relationships between the people who are facilitating and learning in that sim outside of it. It was interesting seeing the perspective of a number of the paediatricians who contributed to the discussion and also to Mel Rule, who's an emergency physician, but also a, a parent. And there were really similar themes in child rearing and in teaching children of uh, the point that people described as the circle of security, which is really that principle that you have to get that safe foundational space where um, you can get your toddler kind of feeling secure enough to start taking risks. Um, and so those principles that we've got in simulation are, are also echoed in developmental pediatrics. So I found that quite interesting. The one thing I'd just sort of add that was a little bit absent from the discussion was any discussion of the methods of the paper. Essentially, there isn't empiric research in this area. What works in psychological safety? It's very hard to measure the outcome. It's very hard to describe and do an intervention like a pre-brief consistently. So clearly having some sort of randomized control trial isn't going to answer the question for us. And so it's interesting to see how the authors actually put this paper together and what they describe as their three sources uh, that allow them to come to their conclusions are a literature review, which draws on a number of different fields, which I think is rather clever because Often it's tempting just to go to your PubMed, but that clearly wasn't going to work in this case when you're talking about psychological safety and debriefing across a range of different uh, areas of practice and not just healthcare. And then secondarily, they drew on their experience of developing an assessment of debriefing, and that is the DASH that we've talked about before and that you can look up online. And thirdly, they say they draw on their combined expertise of thousands of debriefs, which we know the authors have got. So I think it's just worth sort of thinking about how do you write an expert paper and give it a level of rigour that might not be there if you just say, here's what we reckon. And so it's worth having a bit of a look at that, even though there wasn't much commentary on that uh, in the actual discussion itself. It's really important for us to try and break psych safety down into teachable points, but it, we've also got to acknowledge that this stuff can be really hard. So it was such a privilege to try and keep getting better at getting better with everybody else this month, and thank you so much for all of your comments. All right, and Ben, one of the highlights of this month for me was reading our expert commentary, and that was offered by Chris Nixon. Uh, Many people will know Chris Nixon, but for those who don't, he's an emergency physician and intensivist who works at the Alfred in Melbourne in the intensive care unit there, where he's the lead for education and simulation, and at present is doing a lot of uh, insight simulation in that environment. But Chris is also known for his presence and wonderful contributions in social media. He's a co-creator of Life in the Fast Lane, an emergency medicine blog, The Rage podcast, which is the resuscitation Resuscitationist's awesome guide to everything. He's also one of the founders of the Smack Conference, which many of our listeners will have been to and also know we recorded a podcast about the simulation activities at the Smack Conference this year in Berlin. Uh, and more recently, he's been involved in setting up a clinical educators network within the intensive care group. So Chris has been busy in many educational circles. So we were lucky to have him for at least a little bit of time to write really a wonderful summary of both the paper and the discussions this month. Yeah, it was incredible. I may have um, sworn in amazement when I read the paper. 
Um, so, look, Chris's expert commentary is one of my favorite responses we've had of all time. It's funny, it's smart, it's respectful, but it's also challenging. And he brings up a number of important points. He echoes the point that psych safety isn't about warm fuzzies. And I'm going to directly quote him. He says, if you think psychological safety is about group hugs, singing kumbaya, getting your feet massaged and keeping it all cuddly feely at all costs, you are wrong, profoundly wrong. Wrong like a Trump presidency, wrong like Brexit, wrong like a lot of other really wrong things. The safe container is not about creating a comfortable space. It's about making it okay to be uncomfortable. Psychological safety helps convert the threat of socio-evaluative stress into a challenge so that we no longer worry about being embarrassed or having our identities dismembered and so that we can do things that help us learn despite the discomfort. He then makes a really critical point about our educational and clinical identities, which we've touched on already, but he phrases it a little more eloquently when he says, if you're a day-to-day dickhead in the workplace, you can't expect to wave the safe container wand and turn from toad to prince as you step into the sim room. People will know you for who you really are. Even worse, even if you were an all-round good guy, even the best safe container strategy will be devoured if the pervading workplace culture is toxic. And um, he makes a beautiful quote which kind of echoed Mary Fay's original quote from the first journal club that we did where he says, uh, psychological safety is not something you say. It is something that grows from what you do, which kind of took us full circle for this year and a half in that there was a similar comment made by Mary Fay about learner-centered debriefing a very long time ago now. Yes, you're just oozing your uh, your intellectual crush on Chris Nixon there in those comments, Ben. A little but, bit. Uh, it, was, it was very good. And, and you got the Macbeth reference, I presume? Oh, I missed the Macbeth one. Okay, go back and read it and our listeners will just have to look for it. Absolutely. And I guess as the final point is that he challenged the article with some alternative perspectives, um, which are well worth reading. He points out that many of us have transformative moments in our past that are associated with powerfully negative experiences. He argues that the work of academics like Daniel Kahneman and others suggest that maybe we're not as rational as the fundamental premise sometimes suggests. And he also counters the importance of the fiction contract with the possibility that functional task alignment might be more relevant than one's perception of reality. So thanks to Chris. It's a wonderful read. It fills me with fear that people might listen to the podcast and not download the PDF and read it because it's such wise, warm words. So please jump onto the website and check it out. Absolutely. And we'll uh, be tweeting that out as well. So that will give people a chance and a reminder to go onto the uh, website and read it. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, Ben. Well, I'm happy to uh, now just take a little dip into what we've been reading recently. And I've got four papers that we're going to do each of them fairly light because each of them have got, I think, a couple of key points to take home. So the first paper I was going to cover is called Method Matters, Impact of In-Scenario Instruction on Simulation-Based Teamwork Training. And this is by Cecilia Escher and her colleagues in Advances in Simulation, just released uh, this year, this month. Uh, Advances in Simulation, as you know, we have a partnership with and it's uh, open access. So you'll be able to download this article and read it for yourself. 
But essentially, this article looks at this question of how do you provide information in the scenario when there's a gap in the physical realism? Something like the skin is cold. How do you tell your learners that when you're dealing with a plastic mannequin? And the reason I picked this article is this is such a practical question. And having been around the traps a little while, I find a lot of people have really dogmatic beliefs about should you have a voice of God or should you have someone in the scenario? And there's a big variation in practice. And I thought this was actually a pretty well done study for starting to look at uh, what are the risks and benefits of different kinds of approaches. So I thought it was really useful little study, Ben. I'll just get your sort of initial thoughts on that. Yeah, I I was surprised by how much I loved it actually because I think it is such a practical, sensible question and the approach that they took was rather than which one is better, it was let's just look at what each method does and what are the strengths and weaknesses for each and what they bring to the scenario. And I found that a really mature way of looking at the issue and uh, certainly informed my approach. Yeah, so they start by just giving a bit of background, which is no news to simulation educators. There's a gap between simulation and reality, and in particular in terms of physical resemblance, although not only physical resemblance. And so they're basic uh, question was how should facilitators supply what they call the extra scenario information or as some people would describe it queuing so what they actually did they did what they describe as a descriptive qualitative study and they performed video recording of team training sessions and then basically analyzed those uh, in which there were different methods of this provision of extra scenario information Uh, they described their three research questions as number one What kind of methods do people use to convey that information? Two, what triggers facilitators to actually provide the information? And that was a question I hadn't necessarily thought of. And then thirdly, what visible impact does each method have? Uh, In terms of the scenarios, they made no attempt to sort of standardise them. They had a number of different kinds of scenarios and different levels of participants. Uh, I think they just really wanted to get a range of things so that they could get an idea about what methods were people using. And so what did they find? They essentially described four main methods. And again, these will be fairly familiar to people, but I'll just sort of list them out. And in each case, they found that information was essentially provided either in response to a question from the participants, i.e. what does the skin feel like, or an action. So someone started to listen to the chest or someone started looking in the pupils. And so they were the two triggers. So the first way that people tended to provide information was via a confederate. So this is something like having a nurse in the scenario and as soon as someone starts listening to the chest, the nurse says the patient has crackles or they're looking at the skin and they said the patient has a rash. And so it's very quick, very in the moment and they found that that didn't disturb the flow of the scenario very much at all and the participants could essentially continue their so-called horizontal communication within their team and continuing to act uh, as a team without being distracted by the provision of the information. The second method that they found was provision of information by a bystander who was in the room. And I guess I've seen this most where you've got a sort of facilitator teaching more junior learners. And so the facilitator stands in the corner. They're not pretending to be part of the team. But in response to similar cues, they will say stuff like, there are crackles in the chest. 
And sometimes that might even be part of a sort of teaching ex exercise like, what are you thinking now? Um, but for the most part, these were people not involved. And there were many similarities to method one when they said what was the impact of that. So they found, again, this didn't disrupt the flow too much. There still tended to be more of this sort of horizontal communication. So they were the first couple of methods, Ben, and I guess you've probably seen these and, and probably found similar experiences with them. Yeah, interestingly, almost all of my training was sort of voice of God style and we called that Santa because uh, he brought you what you needed rather than what you wanted necessarily. And um, so it was real eye-opener for me when I started watching Confederates at Work. I like it as a technique. Yeah, and uh, likewise, which which is a nice kind of segue into those second two methods. So the method three is just as you describe, information via a loudspeaker. And similar cues, it tended to happen when the participants either asked for information or they were doing something where clearly information gap was observed. And so this is press the button in the control room and say something along the lines of, the skin is cold. Uh, and interestingly, that seems to get quite different response to when the Confederate says it. For a start, everyone stops and looks up at the speaker and it seems to create a significant gap in the smoothness of flow of the scenario and it creates what the paper describes as more vertical communication, i.e. talking back then to this voice of God or Santa in the ceiling um, rather than continuing to talk to the participants. And then method four uh, which is similar in some ways because the information comes from a control room, was giving that information via an earpiece where at least one of the participants in the scenario has got an earpiece in and then if they ask a question, the information comes back into the earpiece, which must be just incredibly annoying and distracting for a start, but also means then they have to share it with the rest of the team and creates more of this vertical interaction with the facilitator. So um, I think really nicely described. I've seen all of those methods used and just interesting to sort of tease out uh, what impact that has been. Yeah, yeah, a really good question. A great amount of qualitative information from the study. I enjoyed it very much. I have got a funny story about this. When I went up to a uh, simulation centre in Townsville, I thought it was fantastic. I saw this um, microphone there and it had... Vic written on it and I went oh my god they've named the microphone in this simulation center after me anyway I said as much sort of feeling a little bashful and they said no no that stands for <laughs> voice in ceiling <laughs> <laughs> you have your director's chair while you're at it yeah exactly something like that so I guess just to wrap up that paper you know my practice is for preference to use a confederate for some of the reasons they talk about in the paper but I acknowledge that I have a team that I can train them to do that. And also, it doesn't mean that I have to skimp on people in my control room who are actually running the scenario. I think it's pretty hard to do if you're trying to do across um, roles and trying to cover both of those bases with a fewer number of people. But I think the take-home message is trade-offs exist and just think about the impact of each. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, so going on then to the second paper that I've got, and um, this is really a geek out paper, but it's a pretty interesting geek out paper, Ben. Um, it's called 
Analyzing Voice Quality and Pitch in Interactions of Emergency Care Simulation by Frank Coffey and colleagues. And this one is in BMJ Stell, which is Simulation and Technology Enabled Learning. And uh, it's not open access, but it's a really good journal and probably worth a subscription if you're interested in simulation. And this paper is interesting because it essentially is an example of using simulation as a test bed uh, through standardizing the environment in which you're testing something else, as opposed to research about simulation itself. And the background and really the point of this paper is that they propose that there's two types of talking that we do in emergency care. One is we talk to the patient and we have a certain way we talk to them. And the other is we talk to our colleagues. And in emergency care, these two things tend to happen quite concurrently and mixed up. So they were interested in the question of how we regulate consciously or unconsciously our voices for these interactions. How do we change our voice quality and pitch? So I thought it was a fascinating um, concept, Ben, that I really hadn't thought about before. Yeah, I really like um, these kind of papers or studies where they analyze stuff that we do subconsciously that you've really never thought about. Um, I remember looking at the differences in the way people treated me when I was wearing blue scrubs, which in our hospital are um, for trainees, and black scrubs when I became a consultant, but I'd moved to a new hospital, and so no one knew me, and one day I wore blue, and one day I wore black. And the responses were pretty fascinating. So um, I love sort of analyzing that stuff and looking at, you know, what people do and how we do these things subconsciously. Because I think once you know it, you can teach it and you look, you can either learn from it or change your practice. See, you still look young enough to get away with that, Ben. People still think you could be a registrar. <laughs> <laughs> a few more years. Got a few more years in me. Yeah, good on you. <laughs> Well, the salt and pepper kicks in a bit too hard. That's it. All right, so how did they actually look at this question? Uh, essentially, they put a medical student in a scenario with a patient and two other healthcare providers who, as far as I can tell from the study, were nurses, and this medical student was looking after a patient with chest pain. So this is a scenario that's very familiar, standard, um, common for many simulation programs. Uh, and what they did is they used that scenario to record and analyse the voice interactions. And so they weren't interested in what the medical student was saying, but rather what was the quality of voice when they were communicating with the patient as opposed to the healthcare providers. And there's a lot in this paper that I'm not going to get into, but believe me, I learned a lot about this phonetic analysis. Uh, obviously, there's things we all understand about voice, which is pitch and loudness and quality, but there's all these other terms that I'd never heard of, like jitter and shimmer and harmonicity and maybe people who are into music understand all these things but essentially to, it's important to say there are qualities of voice that many of us are unaware of but which probably have a big impact on how people perceive our interactions and again to cut a really long story short what they found was talking to the patient we tend to speak louder and we tend to speak clearer and in some cases we tend to use a higher pitch whereas when we're talking to healthcare providers we tend to drop our tone and we tend to use what they called a shattered voice which is we would often have more staccato kind of um, elements to that as opposed to the sort of smooth modulation that we tended to have with the patient which I thought was an interesting 
interesting finding, but I guess when I reflected and thought about the conversations I have with my peers, maybe not surprising. Um, what it means, no one knows. Their conclusion, they're very modest about that. It's just one case. And I think really what they were doing was looking to uh, test out and embed this as a method so then they can start looking at some more interesting questions, which is are there differences between gender, are there differences between level of seniority or the nature of the patient, and that might be some of the more interesting research questions that would come out once this is established as a method. So interesting little paper, Ben. It was. Can I overshare one other slightly irrelevant analogy? But of where course. I think this paper could be useful is... When I moved from pediatric emergency to do my adults year, one of the clinical nurses pulled me aside after I had this really upset drug overdose patient who was telling me off for being condescending. And I was like, I'm not being condescending, I'm being nice. And uh, Clancy, this nurse, pulled me aside and he said, Ben, you're talking to them like you would talk to your pediatric patient. And so it obviously evolved a sort of vocal modulation that was specific to my clinical practice and was appropriate in that environment. And then when I moved environments, it wasn't appropriate anymore. It was really good feedback. So I agree, there'll be a lot of information that might be useful from this uh, once they get their big papers up and running. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That is pretty funny. So if uh, I'll let you know if you're talking to me in that same condescending <laughs> way any time. <laughs> when you start saying to me, Vic, have you cleaned your teeth yet? That's right. Yep, yep. <laughs> All right, our next paper, a patient flow simulator for healthcare management education. Uh, this is by Bean and colleagues, also in BMJ Stell in October 2017. And uh, this is a short but concise description of a software tool for healthcare students and healthcare providers to learn about patient flow. And I included this in here because it's a nice example of a computer-based simulation. Most of the time we spend our time talking about mannequins or SPs. Uh, I think it's a nice example of how simulation relating to operational management uh, issues in a hospital is illustrated. And also because I just did something like this. Uh, I recently participated in a simulation at our hospital looking at a new patient flow hub. And it was very interesting to me. It was just like any other scenario. There were human equipment interactions and there were human-human interactions and a debrief discussion that really uh, looked at how the team works together. So the background to this, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, Ben, and how much you've had to do with patient flow, but, you know, this is big business in hospitals. We think we do the life-saving work looking after the patients, but they have to go somewhere. And it's now a really complicated system affected by a lot of variables. Obviously, what's wrong with the patient, but also what sort of resources in the hospital are there, um, how many staff are there in each ward, uh, but also policies like do wards take overflow, uh, is it first come, first serves, or do people go to a ward based on their specific need? And essentially this uh, online simulator is designed to teach us mere mortals some of the factors that go into those sorts of issues. Okay. So what they uh, what they did is on the website, it's a the website is a simulator, and I'll put the uh, link into the blog post. But essentially you log in and you can adjust all these variables that I talked about to set up the simulation. So how many beds are there in the hospital? How many are there in each ward? What kind of policies do they have for their queuing? And then basically it 
then you press run and it does a discrete event simulation. And in the background, then it goes through all these patients presenting, various things happening to them, and then going to the wards. And it says at the end of it, this is how many patients are left in the hospital and this is your average length of stay in the ED and it runs a report for you. And i got to tell you, it was a huge disappointment in one way because I thought when I pressed run, there would be this lovely little avatars running everywhere and patients going to different ward. But no, it does one month of patient flow in one second. So those whole 1,400 admissions are reflected in one second of online time and you just get the analysis. So it's not really very much fun. It's not like a computer game, but it is very instructive because, of course, then you can change those variables and you can see what kind of impact it has on the hospital outcomes. And the idea about this is that it's then incorporated into a workshop to learn about patient flow. So I think it is actually pretty cool, but don't go onto it if you're just looking for a, a little game about patient flow. Yeah, I was um, I was looking for my Super Mario mushroom. I was a bit <laughs> confused about about what I found when I logged onto that. It, it is just a whole pile of numbers that I'm sure are very important to someone more important than me. <laughs> We've really sold it hard, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> I think I went into it with the wrong frame. Would be my my, uh, my approach to that. All right, but the last paper, I'm afraid you do have to get and read from beginning to end. And so really, I'm not even going to pretend that we're going to do justice to it and summarising. I'm just going to give you an advertisement. This is an article that if you are in acute care teams or if you train acute care teams, this is the must read. I think this is going to be the landmark article about that. So it's entitled The Human Factor optimizing trauma team performance in dynamic clinical environments and it's by chris hicks and andrew petrosniak from uh, toronto and you might remember that uh, andrew was on simulcast uh, in an interview with jesse and i about 12 months ago on insight simulation so it's landmark for a couple of reasons and why I included it here. One is a lot of the things and comments that they make about simulation are so about trauma teams are informed by their experience of in situ simulation. And secondly, because I think it describes some best practice in behaviours, in team structures, uh, mental rehearsal and other issues that I think we need to be aiming for in our simulations. So important behaviours like pre-briefings, like communication strategies and like how do you support teams being adaptable and flexible. So as I said, I'm not even going to pretend to summarise the paper but I'm really going to encourage people to go and read it if you do train teams from beginning to end. What did you think, Ben? Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be a pivotal paper. Um, I think it was a somewhat of a relief to read it after sort of sitting in a few CRM courses where, you know, you you ad nauseum, repeat, do closed loop communication, anticipate and plan. And to see um, the resuscitation community start to dig deeper and say, no, no, let's really break this down. How are we going to do this better uh, was a real watershed moment. So I look forward to it translating into clinical practice. Yeah, I agree. I think that was, it's a level of sophistication up from your CRM mantra list. And uh, it doesn't discount those things. They're all good, but it just says actually it's a little bit more complex. Uh, and again, it draws on plenty of literature, but I think it's easy then to see it grounded. Um, there's theory, there's principles, and then some really practical suggestions about uh, what we should be doing as practitioners and as educators. 
All right. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure as usual. Um, we're going to have a little break now, aren't we, until February and then come back for some more great Journal Club uh, simulcast in the new year. We are. So this is the – now, this has been a full year now that we've been doing the podcasting at the end of the Journal Club wrap-up. So that was a nice little milestone to reflect on. Uh, it's been so lovely spending uh, an hour with you every month and having a chat about simulation and life in general. Um, one thing I'm going to ask our listeners is that for next year, I'm very much keen to continue the pivotal paper kind of alternating with a more new paper approach. And I'm really looking if there's a if there is a curriculum that you want to read, um, send me the papers if you just... Um, message us on Twitter and let me know of any interesting articles that you'd like to have us covered and I'll try and put together a little curriculum for next year. Yeah, and I'll just echo that. Um, two things. Um, do give any comments either on the blog or uh, direct message us on Twitter, either at SimPodcast or either at Dr. Ben Simon or at Socratic EM. We'd love to hear from you, ideas for papers and anything else. And, of course, I'd like to thank you, Ben. You just write these beautiful little cases every month. Give us a nice lead-in that makes it all feel very accessible. And uh, I do think you encourage a lot of psychological safety and in your facilitating the discussions online. So I'll encourage everyone to go there. It is a safe place to be and some amazing uh, work words from some very clever educators from around the world so thank you for um doing this with us for the year ben yeah thanks so much and thanks for uh, shepherding me along the way simulcast <laughs>